The Spin-Off Podcast Network. You're listening to Business is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business is Boring is brought to you by SparkLab, offering inspiration and practical advice to help businesses find their edge. To hear more about SparkLab, including details about the latest events, workshops, and business tools, visit sparklab.co.nz. And now, here's your host, Simon Pound. You're listening to Business Is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business Is Boring is made by The Spin-Off with help from Callaghan Innovation, New Zealand's innovation agency. Here's your host, Simon Pound. Bananas are one of the most popular grocery items in New Zealand. We buy enough of them to eat 18 kilograms each per year. For years, bananas were also a symbol of the kind of capitalism that had companies exploit workers, overthrow governments, and farm monocrops until they failed. In New Zealand, though, a few old friends got together and started All Good, bringing in bananas that were fair trade. These have been a hit, capturing 7% of the market, showing people will pay a little more for something a lot better for the world and workers. They led to a wave of other fair trade bananas, which has to be a good thing, but this month they're upping the ante by going carbon zero, offsetting emissions with permanent Amazon rainforest protected plantings. And the amazing thing about this is that All Good Bananas is only part of what today's guest and his company do in the space. Simon Coley is co-founder of All Good and also Karma Drinks, where their work with growers of cola nuts in Sierra Leone is helping a community grow equitably and expanding around the world. It's been no easy year for a drinks business serving small cafes around the world, and there have been capital raising and business reinventing changes afoot. To learn about changing some of the grocery mainstays for the better, purpose-led business, and his entrepreneur's journey, Simon Coley joins us now. Kia ora, thank you for being here. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Good to be here, Simon. Hey, so first up, like heading back to kind of... Um, the beginning of your career in creative and marketing, which is kind of um, the, the side that you're bringing to those uh, businesses in the first instance. Yeah, t- tell me about how you, you got your start and what attracted you to the world of brands and storytelling. Oh, if, to be honest, it started with my first ever job in, this, in a printing press in Christchurch, the Caxton Press. I was always interested in the technology of making stories, you know, printing and illustration, uh, graphic design. And I remember telling one of the guys who was working there when at 14 I swept the floors of this press that I wanted to be a graphic designer when I grew up. And he said, oh, you don't want to do that. You'll burn out. (laughs) I thought that was pretty interesting because I had no idea what that meant. But what he was talking about, I think, was that he'd seen a lot of people come into that place with big ideas and then he'd had to somehow execute them. He was a printer. He was a craftsman. And I really loved seeing these guys and woman print, like making stuff. And I think it started for me in just wanting to make things. Um, and because I grew up in a family who appreciated art, my father ran an art gallery, he was an art teacher, he still is an artist, 
I was it, it was natural for me to feel comfortable doing those sorts of things. And over time, I saw the power of those of communication. That if you nailed it, if you got the story right, people were interested, and you could help them learn. What a magic place to have that love of graphic design, you know, in an actual kind of printing uh, environment, tactile, and you know, with such a history behind it. Yeah, it is. It's sort of pretty evocative to me thinking about it now because it's not often you can go into a place and smell the ink, you know, and actually have a sort of physical experience of the technology of communicating. You know, it's very different these days. But I'd also sit in my father's studio while he was painting and smell his oil paints and those sorts of things were also kind of, I don't know, they're memories that I still hold dear because they, they started me on this journey, I think, just seeing that the, the, the power of, of creativity really is the thing that differentiates us and is an incredible way to engage people and, and do things that are, you know, in, in, the, in the context of what we do now, you know, tell stories that benefit people. And then you worked as a graphic designer and, and a creative with a bunch of great brands before getting into starting businesses yourself, hey? Yeah, I think there was a convergence from this interest in the, in the craft to a kind of, as a kid I was almost forced to go and um, put uh, leaflets into letterboxes for the Labour Party to be kind of politicised by my parents in a good way. And 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 just sort of understanding, because they'd both come from single-parent families, that, that there was a sort of, uh, I don't know, a, a, a way of improving people's lives through, you know, I don't know, better social awareness, um, just being aware of your role as a citizen, I suppose. And I think that's influenced things that I've done. Although some of those brands I've worked for are undeniably luxury brands, but a lot of them have been organisations like Greenpeace or The Economist, where you know communicating is is the the primary interest. That you know, if you bear witness as Greenpeace, you can make change. Uh, the brand, as you know, The Economist is all about you know informing people so they can make better decisions. And I feel like that's what we try and do in these businesses that that I'm involved in. That we really want consumers to be engaged, not to treat them as a resource that we can generate money from but to treat them as you know, people that can help us achieve ultimately a better world. And Greenpeace at times has been a really wide-based movement, hasn't it? Like if I think about Greenpeace uh, growing up, you know, everyone around Mount Eden where I grew up had the Greenpeace sticker on the car and yeah. the, the sticker on their kitchen door and the Rainbow Warrior uh, illustration. And it, it was something it was, people were It's part a of. brand, yeah. and it was a brand that people would use as a way of signalling their virtue, you know, and, and undeniably a strong way of engaging people to make change is to give them a thing to believe in. And brands are basically beliefs. You know, your commitment to, to purchasing something is about your identification with it, and that's your kind of belief system. So so seeing Greenpeace as a global phenomenon because of a couple of things that really got them going, like, you know, protesting in a really effective way against nuclear testing and against um, exploiting the seas and really defining them their mission that way to protect the planet and the people that live on it was the the thing that made them resonate around the world. There are so many other organisations doing that at the moment and some much more commercial ones. I mean, I see, you know, you're wearing a Patagonia T-shirt. They're doing that too. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, this is something that is no longer a kind of 
uh, a, a domain of the, the the fringe on the left. It mm. is pretty much common practice now for people to use their purpose beyond profit. Yeah, the, the Patagonia shirt's an interesting one. I actually made a conscious decision. I was like, I wanted a white long sleeve shirt. I was like, I can get one made with child labour or I can get one that's going to use some of its profits to annoy a Trump world. I was and like, that, oh, well, yeah. I'll, the, I'll the, do that, that one. That provocation is everything now. Like you make an identification and I look at the my kids making choices now. They're not about style without substance. They have to go together. And what led you to entrepreneurialism, like to, 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 to wanting to get your own ideas out through business? Um, I think it was a combination of, of, of enjoying making things, like the, the outcomes of, uh, you know, the satisfaction I got out of, say, being a graphic designer or an activist and these other things was actually seeing outcomes. And, you know, to be an entrepreneur, you've got to be a lot more interested in what you're trying to achieve than the process, I think, although the process is very important. You really got to focus on where you're going, you know, what do you want as an output? So sometimes the only way to do it is to do it yourself. I don't think I even made the conscious decision that I would be a word that's hard to spell. Yeah. <laughs> I think I just went, you know, again, very fortunate to be in the circumstance where, you know, other people I've been privileged enough to work with have helped me get there and that that sort of seems like serendipity, that these decisions don't, in retrospect, seem that conscious. I just carried on making stuff and this is what popped out of it. Um, but there were there are a couple of moments. Like I, I think the first I used to work for myself at a studio when I lived in London. It was much more enjoyable bringing people together to make things than doing it with someone else. I don't like being told what to do that much. I'm better off. I'm not even that good at getting other people to do things, but I quite like being with other people doing things, especially if we're not you know kind of forced to do things that don't meet our values and that I think that's where this comes from especially the relationship with Chris and Matt who I founded um, All Good and Karma Drinks with is that we all had very similar ideas about what we wanted to do and they coalesced around you know this this really exciting opportunity that we'd come across or that Chris had come across with bananas that having seen um, produce from the South Pacific not making it to market because a lot of that market that used to support countries like Samoa had been overtaken by bigger brands. You know, fruit companies are enormous and it takes a lot of scale to actually grow and deliver a fresh banana to someone in New Zealand. So it's hard to do on a small scale and there's no competition in that area. But when we saw quite naively that it might be possible to do that, we jumped on it. We went, right, if, if it made sense to me that people that I knew in New Zealand would prefer to buy a kind of ethical banana from Samoa than anywhere else just because they're neighbours. <laughs> and because you kind of have that in your imagination, you know, I'd rather help these people because I'm closer to them, you know, they may be my own family, and I'd feel good about that. And that was pretty much why what all good came from, that we would do put these products together or make them available because they were good for the people that grew the produce we were accessing, good for the land it was grown in, and ultimately good for the consumers who were buying it. And that made complete sense to me, so we thought we'd, you know, I was committed. 
it's quite a remarkable opportunity, really, in bananas, in that they're such a mainstay, you know, one of the most popular things sold at supermarkets. But, like, before you, you, you got started, they're pretty... You know, like like objectively awful. Like the companies that had run them have, have destabilized countries. The poisons that they use, the workers are uh, in a in a form of kind of indentured servitude. Like it's an extraordinarily kind of like nasty edge of capitalism. And no one would think about that when they gave their kids a banana. In it's the bizarre, morning. isn't it? Because they are such a kind of innocent thing. They're a fruit. You know, they're the first <laughs> thing you see when you walk into a supermarket, and they're the butt of jokes. You know, you. They're a comedy prop, <laughs> so you can't see them as being anything but benevolent, right? But the history of the banana industry is really steeped in blood. Like there are Guatemala and um, Colombia. There are other Latin American countries that have become, as you've said, destabilized because of the politics of growing this crop, because it was such an insatiable prod- product to... To, in the way it was consumed in the US and Europe, that it made a lot of money for for a few people, and there were there were railway lines that went directly from Colombia all the way up into the US, that just kept shunting bananas there. Um, what this did was make the land a premium for banana growers, and sort of you know over time this became a problem for at a at a national level because that land wasn't available for other things. And the first ever democratically elected government uh, president of Guatemala tried to buy back the land that these fruit companies had, and wasn't they weren't receptive to his his desire to nationalise land that was very important to sustaining the country. So he looked at their tax returns to figure out what a good price for that for that land would be. Their tax returns didn't show that they were making a lot of money out of that land, so he didn't offer them much money for it. And they were up in arms. This is, remember, this is the first democratically elected president in Latin America. And the, the fruit company owner went to the, pen, went to the White House and said, These, this is communist activity. <laughs> you know. So um, with the support of the US military, he was destabilised yeah. and run out of his own country. So, you know, this is this is the stuff that sounds a bit like what's been happening in the US in the last couple of weeks, the stuff of fiction. Yeah, and, <laughs> but and, it's not. This is historic. Yeah. And, and where that idea of a banana republic came from. And, Absolutely. And, and, mm. yeah, and, and yet, you know, um, in, in the supermarket, you'd never, you'd never know it. And so with what Allgood did, it kind of was the, one of the first really mainstream fair trade um, options in the, alongside coffee and chocolate that were mm. kind of you know, really at the front of it as well. Um, how's it been to see it go from, you know, probably something that people thought was a bit bananas to even try in that it was going to be more expensive uh, for a mainstay, to now having had a raft of kind of the big companies making their own mm. um, fair, fair trade options that I imagine are on a scale from greenwash to to uh, decent. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's been interesting because, you know, we started, like I said before, not knowing a lot about the banana business but believing that we could do something. And there's something I think quite useful in what you don't know when you start something like this. It's sort of healthy innocence or naivety. But the, there's a, a man called Gert Demier who works for us and or works with us and is based in Belgium and he's like a banana guru. He's he we used to work for Shell as as a kind of actuary checking out 
you know, territories that they were exploiting. And he came to the light side and started looking at how to help AgriFair, the company that he worked with, make the supply chain for bananas ethical and equitable for producers. And to do that, he's become an expert at managing the quality of bananas. So he helps us with our supply. Um, in the first week, we'd started selling real bananas. So we, we did get real bananas from Samoa, but we discovered very quickly that we couldn't really manage the demand or the quality. So we looked further afield, and with the help of Fair Trade, started working with a cooperative in Ecuador called El Guabo, who were probably the first ever cooperative to be able to sell to the Northern Hemisphere at scale. They had been so kind of pressured and exploited by banana companies buying off them as small farmers and not uh, honouring contracts to buy crops that they decided to band together, go direct to a supermarket cooperative in Switzerland and put together a container and send it to them. And the cooperative said, great, do that and we'll see how it goes. And they've been doing this as a cooperative ever since and now they're probably one of the biggest banana growing cooperatives. There's, there's easily three or 400 farmers in the El Guabo Association of Fort Small Banana Farmers and probably 70 of them supply us here in New Zealand and they're incredibly well organised. Like these are small farms but they're able to get all their bananas together and into a container and sent to us every week. So it's impressive to see how the kind of community can work together to achieve this in the face of competition, which is much more mechanised, much bigger plantations, much more use of chemicals. Much, you know, we've, These are small but you know, well put together processes. At any rate, that, what we found was that, you know, that once, what Gert said to me once we'd been going for a week and realised that we'd bitten off a lot more than we could chew, he just said, you're in the banana business now. That's the way. <laughs> That's so remarkable that it's 70 families that supply the... Because you think of bananas as being kind of huge and industrial and, you, you know, kind of um, so exotic and far away that it, it couldn't be something kind of so small when you see those all-good fair trade bananas at every supermarket in the country. Yeah, so at any given time, there's 70 farms, family farms, that are a few hectares, um, producing to fill a container. Now, we sell four to five containers a week. So every one of those containers has 70 contributors, probably. You know, it might be less, it might be more. It depends on, on how much they've got maturing at the time. And this is where the complexity that they manage is, is phenomenal. It's almost miraculous that they can bring all of that produce from such a scattered group of people into one place and get it here to the quality it is. But I actually think like you said in the introduction, the fact that it's not a monoculture, the fact that these things have many hands and many eyes on the production of the produce makes them, they're grown with love. You know, they've got a lot more care in the production that comes through in the quality. And actually, the thing that probably sells our bananas better than anything else is that they are always great quality. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. And, and that kind of... Um there's that bit of internet wisdom, you know, every dollar you spend is a vote for the kind of world you want to live in. And it's, you know, it's, it sounds trite, but it's very true. You know, every dollar that's being spent on all good bananas and going to families that aren't poisoning their family farms with too many chemicals and pay their work as well and have some independence is a dollar that's not going to the opposite. Yeah, and I think that's our challenge now is that you go, these are beliefs. You know, we have a strong, very strong values underpinning what we do. We need to hold ourselves to account, like we do use fair trade to help us 
substantiate those claims and we want to be as transparent as we can in order to make sure people can believe that. It's, you know, when we first started, we saw other banana companies putting stickers on their bananas talking about their ethics and it's kind of easy to make the claims but like you said, the internet wisdom is supported by the internet. If you feel like you want to make a difference, you can research it pretty quickly. So this idea of authenticity as a way of making that dollar you spend um, a believable change, you know, something that you can have confidence in is really important. And we know that as soon as we misstep, we're open to that kind of criticism. So we've got to be really careful about these things. That's why we've now decided we're going to have to go further than the sort of uh, fair trade and organic certifications we seek and try and look at our supply chain with even more focus and think about how we can reduce any waste and any carbon produced in the you know from farm to fruit bowl if you like and that's why we're talking about making well, well that's why we've made our bananas carbon zero or tried to neutralize the carbon in that whole supply chain because we feel as a you know we can't really go to work believing what we believe in without doing that as well. Kia ora, I'm Sophie. I'm Simon. And I'm Alice, and together we host the spin-off's food podcast, Dietary Requirements. Join us each month as we explore a vast culinary landscape, from the gourmet... Ooh la la. ...to your more hearty tucker. Onion dip, anyone? Everything's on the table in Dietary Requirements. Subscribe wherever you listen to all your favourite podcasts. <laughs> And what does that mean for, like, how are you sequestering the, the carbon? And does it mean that, like, there's, there's a, a price premium for adding that? Or is that kind of absorbed within what you're already doing? So two really interesting questions there is, like, how do you pay for it? And the other one is, how do you enact it? So the, on, the, on the payment side, you know, we can't really increase our cost, of, you know, to the consumer. We don't really want to make that a big problem for people. If anything, you'd think the less carbon you produce, the cheaper it would be. Unfortunately, things aren't like that yet. <laughs> we hope them to get that way, but there's actually costed into the benefit you're creating. So two really interesting questions there is, like, how do you pay for it? And the other one is, how do you enact it? So that on, the, on the payment side, you know, we can't really increase our cost of you know, to the consumer. We don't really want to make that a big problem for people. If anything, you'd think the less carbon you produce, the cheaper it would be. Unfortunately, things aren't like that yet. <laughs> we hope them to get that way, but there's actually costed into the benefit you're creating, you know, on a more holistic global scale is uh, a, a price incentive that f you should, for the least carbon you produce, you should be able to charge less. <laughs> but it's not the way things work at the moment. That e those economics are sort of coming into play and they should as there's more systemic ways of taxing and just recognising value and valuing things that, that don't have a productive outcome, like the production of carbon in, in any process. Yeah, it, well, so it's a cost that's currently... Everyone carries because the externalities of production aren't charged for. Yeah, and, uh, and so the people who, the, the way to flip it is that if you are creating carbon, you should be charged rather than you're charged for trying to do something about it. Absolutely, because otherwise you're 
kids or your grandkids or someone else is going to pay for it mm. in a different way. And that's what our current economic system doesn't really account for. So this is this transition that we're sort of all going through is how do we know that and make it tangible so it becomes a cost that we can, that drives change. So the, the challenge with that is that <clears throat> there are many – there's a lot of complexity in getting something from the soil to someone's home, right? And the bits we can control or have more influence over are farming, are the use of, of any inputs onto a farm and how they're managed. And that's all the inputs from um, – we use organic fertiliser, which reduces the use of carbon on the ground considerably, less than other more traditional ways. Um, soft plastics, you have to use a certain amount of these in the growing process to wrap um, – these huge bunches while they mature. So that's all recycled. So there are a number of these initiatives that can happen on the farm. The next thing, and possibly one of the largest contributors to carbon in a banana supply chain is transport. So some of that we can mitigate through better use of transport. Just good logistics and operational um, improvements help. You know, there's lots of small, you know, excuse the pun, low-hanging fruit, you can, you can um, enact to, to improve that. But the biggest one that we don't control is shipping. It's actually not a big contributor to the full carbon kind of liability of a banana, but it's one that needs offsetting until we find a way of carbon-neutral shipping. Now, that's just a fact for pretty much everything that we buy, especially in New Zealand where many, many things are imported. So what we're doing is calculating all of those things beyond zero, beyond neutral, and offsetting it. Now, we'd like to remediate that, and we'd like it to ultimately be closer to where the bananas are coming from. So the first step for us in that is to use the, the, the amount that we put aside, having calculated with ECOS the, the liability, into carbon sequestration in the Andes, in the Amazon, which is very close to where these are grown. It's in Peru rather than in Ecuador on the neighbouring country. But we figure that let's do it as close to the source as we can. So we're actually creating this kind of you know, virtuous circle and making sure that any carbon that we've, that's been created in that purchase has been neutralised. And ultimately, we'd like to be, I guess, carbon positive, to be regenerative. And that's a that's a big step forward, isn't it? Is you can't just put a sticker on on a thing saying <laughs> you've we got to organise yeah. a, a, a lot. It, and it's so interesting in terms of you know um, having done that journey with the um, bananas and made a, a fair trade option a, a standard in people's um, carts. Tell me about the Karma drinks um, story as well, because there was another great opportunity there. Like my favourite thing about having having um, seen you talk about it b- before was the idea that you know cola didn't contain any cola. Yeah, that was. I mean, it's interesting because one of the problems that we encountered pretty quickly when we found ourselves, as Gert said, in the banana business, was that it was going to be hard to live off it. That if we wanted to do this, the margins are pretty thin and. The volatility of being in the business of essentially marketing, um, you know, managing the import and distribution through third parties, but making sure people understood why these bananas were valuable, was kind of our focus. And the it, because it's where the dependent 
there are other external factors we can't control. It's a pretty volatile business, the banana business, until you get to a certain scale with a lot of these sorts of endeavours. So we sort of needed something else to yeah. to um, to help us, and uh, and the products. Uh, sorry, so, sorry, mm. about, I'm just thinking about that. It must be because you're branding a commodity and selling it into a duopoly. Yeah, and <laughs> you've got all of the the climate and weather and transport and logistics and every possible problem you could have in the world. Uh, it must be extraordinarily hard. It's great when you're when you're not quite aware of all that detail. <laughs> I must admit that if, if you'd had that conversation with me 10 years ago, I probably wouldn't have got much further. But there is something in what you don't know that, for my sake anyway, that sort of was, uh, it was helpful. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, sorry, to, sorry to interrupt that's you right. there. Yeah. No, that's good. <laughs> so, so we kind of thought, well, you know, Chris, when I worked at 42 Below, the, the best mixer we could find for, uh, you know, a, a, a cola mix for, for the drinks we were making was Phoenix Organic Cola. It was really great. And, you know, it kind of, we kind of, when Harriet Lamb, who used to be in charge of Fair Trade International, uh, came out here to talk to us about bananas and sort of explain what was happening to some of the market here, we, I sort of, we asked her, do you know if you could get Fair Trade Cola? Because we'd be interested in doing soft drinks. And she went, mm, you know, it's not something we've ever certified. There's just not a big enough market for it in the world. But she knew someone who did, uh, and his name was Albert Tucker. He's a Sierra Leonean native. And we met him, and we were kind of playing with the idea of doing a cola. And he was, you know, pretty surprised to hear from us, but also really excited, like going, okay. So, you know, cola was a thing that came from his childhood and, his, his you know, dynasties of his family um, using this as a, as a ritual in their lives. So, you know, there's a whole lot of meaning in cola in West Africa that was new to me and very exciting. Uh, so you kind of thought, well, we could actually make cola. And you do, as we dug deeper into this, into recipes, and you know, it, could we go further than an organic cola? Could we make one that was karmic? Now the name really helped. Like thinking that that you could have this this contrast of east and west. Evidently, Ravi Sankar's um, nickname was Karma Cola. Really? Yeah. yeah. You, and you kind of get it. It's like, a, you know, Western popular culture and Eastern mysticism was kind of where he sat. And you think, okay, that makes sense. You know, so it's kind of thing, there's the contrast and the idea that you could make something that is essentially another symbol of capitalism. <laughs> like, you know, not as, bananas aren't as overtly that, but cola certainly is, right? Yes, it's yeah. popular culture in a bottle. And that you could turn, you could sort of subvert that make it do something beyond that. Like, if you could harness the idea of cola being such a big deal, and for me it was learning that there was so much of it consumed. Like, um, in the you know, they report this on their website, one of those big cola companies, that something like 1.9 to 2 billion drinks are consumed under that brand every day. Now, that includes other sub-brands, but they all are from a certain cola company. So, you go, know, that's just... We don't need that. Like water's pretty good. Yeah, it's 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 wild, and it it all uses p- potable water from water supplies to be made. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, it's not surprising yeah. that, that, that yeah. the best water in Africa comes from these bottling companies mm. and isn't getting elsewhere. You yeah. know, they've got these systems tied up. They're consuming an enormous amount of water, creating an enormous amount of waste, and then yeah, the the cola 
has no collar. Yeah, well, this is the thing. You go deeper, dig deeper into the recipe, and it's a bit inconvenient to actually use collar if you're making this much of this stuff. You know, if you can replicate it from something you make synthesized, why use the real thing? And the irony for me really came about because I grew up with this. I grew up watching ads for people in that happy era. You know, the, what's the song? I like to teach the world to sing in perfect harmony. It's the real thing. And you go, wow, it's not. <laughs> well, it's got, it's, got no, it's got no Coke. <laughs> yes. There are they some key the, ingredients that have either been legislated <laughs> against or that they can't afford anymore because it doesn't coke? make their margin. They got rid of the collar. Yeah. What do you got? Well, but that's it. Yeah. If you were going to follow the advertising yeah. standards, mm. you'd have a brand called blank. Yeah, yeah well, sugar yeah. and chemicals. Yeah. So we go, this is, this is, you know, from and from the world that I was in, you know, this is great material to work with. You know, we've got a name that explains the purpose that karma and co- that cola, this capitalist symbol, could be that virtuous. And, you know, it's a high thing to kind of um, purport or, or propose to the world, but why not? You know, if we could find a way of making that make sense to people, then surely it would sell some drinks. And, and the, you know, the great thing was we started from a position of knowing how to make a really good organic cola. So all we needed to do was use real ingredients. And now that sounds easy, but actually getting a formulation that people like is hard. And we went through hundreds and hundreds of different iterations until we got to one that we were really happy with. And we still do have to you know, keep testing and figuring out what, how tastes are changing and we develop other products. So there's a lot of work that goes into that. But in essence, the idea was that if you're going to buy one of these things for your own gratification, why not help someone else? And the way that you have told the story over the years of the farmers and the community that you're involved with in Sierra Leone has been remarkable too, as uh, I'm sure there's like a marketing value to it, but there's probably a lot easier ways to get that same marketing value than the amount of commitment that you as a team have have had with that community and the work that you've done. You know, you could just send a check off, for example. Yeah. So there's two things in that too. One of them is the value of the values. You know, we, our values create value for us. And without being too clever about it, if we don't, if we're not authentic, if we haven't really got that story to tell, we don't really deserve to be able to tell it. It should. You know, this, you know, the reason we're having this podcast, these things are relatively newsworthy if they're true, so we've got to live by that. I guess the other thing is that there's a cost, you know, that and we figured out, you know, in a conventional consumer goods business, you know, if you look at, a, say, a traditional soft drink that has that kind of penetration, you're spending an enormous amount of your profit margin, like, yeah, back in promoting the product. Now, we couldn't really do that because we were taxing ourselves in other ways. So our tax on ourselves is an amount that goes to our foundation that enables us to do this and be true to our promise to consumers and to the beneficiaries, the people that live in the villages that get us the cola. We're also buying organic ingredients, which are coming at a higher cost than normal. We're, buy, we're, we're now sequestering carbon with cola as well, with our drinks as well, and we're, um, we're fair trade. So all the other ingredients have a fair trade uh, premium and license fee. So, so that's a number of different, um, you know, kind of uh, hits to the margin that are part of that the eco- economics of selling the stuff. So we can't 
we're sort of taking that out of our marketing budget, if you like, and putting it back into actually doing some good. So, so we've got to rely on that story travelling and carrying to be our marketing. So we've got to double down on that, on the way we work with our Karma Foundation to enable, the, to prove that what we're doing is actually happening. And we, so I've got a really nice example. Yesterday, <clears throat> Albert sent me a little note about a girl called Hawa who has just been accepted into medical school. Now, I've been hassling Albert for the last three or four years to see if someone's come through the education programs that schools we've helped build and all the teachers that have gone into a training that have gone into making this work to see if anyone had matriculated yet. Because <laughs> we've been helping kids, especially young girls, go to primary school and secondary school and seeing them in the times we visit Sierra Leone coming up through this process of education and being supported by their parents and the whole community. But for me, because I'm pretty middle class and this is sort of a personal value, if your kids can get a tertiary education, something's working. <laughs> you know, whether you have to pay for it or the community pays for it or whatever, you really want to give them every opportunity they can to be empowered to make change, right? And that would be the measure of our success is getting someone through that and then into the system that's really going to make them powerful individuals to be able to do more than become the wives of farmers or farmers, which is pretty much the options they have in these villages. And the same thing happened with the work in El Guaba. When we'd seen someone come through the community, a kid who had been given access to education, then we had something to celebrate. Then we knew the whole thing was working, from my perspective anyway. So Howard's just been accepted to med school. So I'm going, you know, this is the, this is the holy grail for us, that we've got an example now. Now that should be the thing we market that we've made it possible for this one kid, because if she can do it, they can all do it. And we've changed the way the, the dynamics in that, with the help of these people, because we don't tell them what to do. We only ask them what help they need. And they've come to us and said, we would really like you to help us make sure our kids get educated. So it's for that to happen is the sort of the best thing that can happen. And it must be immensely satisfying where kind of the, the choices for getting your story out are, Give some money to the Facebooks and the Googles and the the big media companies that do more bad than good for the world, <laughs> or put this money into into helping make actual actual change. After years of working in um, marketing and advertising world, it must be a very satisfying thing to be able to, to send that. a check that are to a different direction. Well, it, it's definitely it's, it's sort of sort of counterintuitive, isn't it? You think that in in our world, our game is to get as much attention as you can. That's the economics of being good at selling consumer goods. But actually, the thing that really is enduring is helping people achieve that because then they become the strongest advocates you can get. And that kind of evangelism, in the best possible sense, is really what we need to make the whole thing work. It is the sort of virtuous circle that if someone's had an experience of this thing benefiting them or someone they want to see benefited, then they become a salesperson for us. So... It's hard to do. It's hard to do when it's mediated by social media and that the getting scale, if you like, out of that kind of idea of the dialogue of consumption and production and benefit to both consumers and producers is quite hard to multiply if you're not on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, you know, all the, all the, 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 the services that enable you to get those stories out there. 
But <clears throat> we kind of believe in the in the the good in people, <laughs> if you like, and that you can ho- hopefully the strength of the of the outcome, the thing we were talking about earlier, is enough to motivate people to use it and share it. Now, hard to do. It doesn't always make the algorithm work in your favour, but worth persevering with. And you can't fake being a purpose-led business, can you? Like, there's no, <laughs> there's well, that, no that, shortcut. That's the other side of this, that if you do, those social media services are going to help other people find out pretty quickly. Because it's weird how this happens, but bad tra- news travels faster than good news. We've seen that in the last few weeks. And we've seen it, you know, repeatedly in the last few years. But, you know, we've got, that's the thing you really have to subvert is say it's better to share good news than bad news. If we're really optimistic, we will make change. If we're ever focusing, and we had this conversation earlier, on the, the fascination with the, the weirder parts of our psyche as humans, you know, Jamiroquai and the capital, <laughs> that the, the, all that weirdness takes up, occupies our time, our attention's not where it can, should probably be for us to improve things. In, in terms, I mean, t- talking a little bit about about kind of the journey and being involved in a bunch of these, um, you know, really iconic companies like the the Ford Jubilos. Um, we haven't we haven't got to it, but having founded uh, co-founder uh, and and helped um, create PowerShop, that was the fastest growing company in New Zealand. You know, that must have been a a hell of a ride. And then you know, with the with the work that you've put into all good and um and and karma drinks. They're still a hard battle, though, aren't they? Like there are much easier ways for someone who's a a very um a, you know very proven uh, fast high growth company founder and um, marketing and creative kind of um, force. There are easier ways to make a buck. Like it still is quite a kind of battle for you guys. Hey, and this year with COVID must have been extraordinarily hard. It, it is, and I think uh, in some respects, my family prefer me to have chosen some easier pathways to supporting them but it's also you know is what gets you up in the morning this kind of stuff and those challenges even though they're dramatically awful like COVID are things that have really forced us as a team as an organization to respond in the best way we can and it's we having these purpose values led businesses you know help you lean into those values I think if anything they have we probably wouldn't have got through COVID in the UK without, you know, a, a higher purpose. We, you know, it, we've, it really did force us to, you know, rethink the way we operate there. Um, unfortunately, we've you know, some wonderful people that work with us don't work with us anymore because we really couldn't cover the overhead that we had when in the first few weeks of COVID, because we're so exposed in a good way to hospitality. You know, the generosity of the hospitality business is what we rely on in order for people to pay a bit more for a drink that's a bit better. And when 90% of hospitality closed down in those first few weeks of the COVID lockdown in the UK last year, we lost 90% of our business because we're, you know, that's where we were selling. So that meant we had to really think carefully about what happened next. We're very lucky it depends on your view of this. The luck for me was that we discovered and appointed a new CEO, a guy called Ben, ben Dando, who has had brilliant experience in consumer goods and, and kind of purpose-driven brands before, but had the experience that we'd found, we'd sort of reached the the edge of our abilities as a team without bringing in someone who had this experience from the outside. 
and Ben is that person. And he had been with us for two weeks before the lockdown happened in the UK. So a bit like the new CEO of Air New Zealand, he'd gone from the excitement of taking on this new challenge and this brand that he really loved to triage very quickly. And he's risen to the occasion. We're very lucky. I don't think we would have got through it without Ben. And, you know, because of that, we're still in pretty good shape and performing well, and we've had the best couple of months we've ever had in terms of profitability in November and December worldwide, which is phenomenal considering where we started last, where we started 2020. Yeah. And having had such an extended period of hospitality being crushed in the UK, you know, it, it, it's been a beautiful thing to see a lot of people decide there are businesses I want to see survive and there are businesses I want to support. And, you know, this idea of kind of patronage in like a nice sense, you know, you, you really yeah. can help to foster. And it's, you know, it's it's the brands that have that real story and have that connection to their consumers. And this that'll is make tangible it, value. As, as long as they can actually ride out cash flow. <laughs> uh, and that, again, that's been our problem. You yeah. know, as you mentioned earlier, we've been trying to get investment on board. Yeah. But I think the thing to recognise there is that The investment you make in terms of energy, effort, commitment, belief in those values and the purpose-driven idea is the credit that you have when the shit hits the fan and that you can lean in and rely on. And that's what we've found is that because that's there, we've got something in the bank. Those relationships we have with big hospitality outfits have endured and we haven't just been cut out because the margin we present to them isn't enough. It hasn't been a rational oh, look, we've got, to, we've got to reduce our menu or our, our, our inventory, so we're going to cut out 20% of it. We're not in that. So I think that's, you know, that, that's something to remember if you're looking at doing this, that you, it's really hard to quantify that, in, that, that your purpose in terms of goodwill, mm-hmm. brand value, whatever you call that equity, but it's there. A bit, bit of good karma. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, and as a last couple of things, you know, that we love to we love to ask everyone. Um, you, you know, like it must be immensely satisfying to you know have have this because you've been in and out of Sierra Leone a bunch of times and been involved in that community for years and got to know the supply chain through the bananas and the like. It must be a really really you know satisfying and amazing to kind of have that link to what makes these products real and to these other communities and and the like in the background. Like, what would your advice be for people who? who are interested in trying to, um, you know, be, be involved in kind of real purposely business and, and try to make um, businesses that do good as well as make money? Yeah, so I used to answer this question by saying just start because you don't learn anything until you begin, and that means get in the market. You know, there are plenty of ways of, of preparing yourself for this kind of commitment, but it is a bit like jumping off a cliff. you just got to have some confidence that you're going to land. But now I also go focus on the outcome. Be really clear about what you want to achieve. Ours is always twofold. You know, we need to be a profitable business to be able to deliver our purpose. So the, the, the balance between generating enough revenue to have the permission to do the job is quite important. We still live in a predominantly capitalist world. We need to know that the use of capital, how it's deployed and how it creates value is the system that we're working within. The other side of it is that value the outcome beyond the profit because if you, in our case with both of these companies, if we're performing well as a business, we can support everyone who, who we employ and who we support as producers and then we can 
benefit those producers. And now that we're extending the kind of way we see the impact of what we do and make it more measurable, like with the carbon zero banana, we want to make sure that that becomes tangible, that the impact is as important, if not more important, as the, the, the driver of profit. And as a final thought, you know, having had, you know, a lot of success in a lot of places, you know, working for some iconic uh, brands and with some great companies, uh, being on the top of the Fast 50, the Deloitte Fast 50, the fastest growing company in the country, uh, starting these businesses that, you know, are, are making all this impact. Like, what will success be for you on a kind of personal level? Uh, and also, uh, you know, what's the kind of like the goal with the business? Yeah, I think that deep into my psychology, I think it's actually a problem. I think that I'm not that satisfied, and that's why it keeps happening, that I keep finding myself in these situations where I want to make these things work. Um, but I think for me, that, that that story about Hawa, that's it. Like, more of those things happening, that's undeniably something great that's come out of all of this work. And, you know, I think I always, I'm schizophrenic. I kind of want to be paid for what I do. But I also want to see people benefit from it, and they're not always in sync. But I think that this, you know, it may sound a bit ethereal, but this idea of karma or, or the, the impact of what we're trying to achieve is is there. And as long as there's evidence of it working, again, that outcome being the impact, then I'm, I'm comfortable that we're getting somewhere and there's a certain amount of satisfaction in that. I think the other thing is that I've this has been a really, real privilege for me to be able to visit these people and be part of their lives and feel like we're making a contribution to it. So like you were saying earlier, being able to go to Sierra Leone and meet people there and hang out with them, that's awesome. Like I would never have done that if we hadn't set this up. So the sort of side benefit's almost as exciting as the actual work, that being engaged in these communities and seeing them develop is a lot of satisfaction. Yeah. Oh, well, it's magic. Thank you so much for um, coming and sharing the story today. It's been, you know, these are brands that, uh, you, know, you know, have so much substance behind them and are such powerhouses. It's really cool to, to hear the story behind them. Oh, thanks, Simon. It's always great getting a chance to talk to someone about it. And, um, yeah, we're still here. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Well, yeah. thank, thank you so much. That's Simon Coley, co-founder uh, at All Good and uh, Karma Drinks. Uh, yeah, cheers. Thanks. Thank you so much to Tina Diller for producing and thank you very much for having us along in your ears and listening. Cheers. You've been listening to Business is Boring, presented by Simon Pound and brought to you by The Spin-Off and Callahan Innovation. From The Spin-Off Podcast Network, that was Business is Boring, brought to you by SparkLab. Make sure you're following Business is Boring wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information on SparkLab, visit sparklab.co.nz. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and of course past performance does not guarantee future returns. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.